Getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us and I got excited. And it was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears and I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like you can do this. I'm gonna tell you 100% you can do this and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart, but but uh, you know she was she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. It feels just as good the tenth time as it did the first time uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you. There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. If it is your first time joining us, we are happy you are here. If you would like to hear other stories, visit www.ineedblue.net. As you listen, if the message moves you, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so more people can find it. Share it with friends and family. The more we share, the more we learn, and the more we can help. Please note, I Need Blue does contain stories which feature graphic content and could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Remember, you always come first. My guests today are accomplished and deeply passionate about creating awareness to help victims of abuse and trafficking, ultimately leading to the eradication of this epidemic. Today's episode focuses on human trafficking, which continually occurs at the U.S. and Mexico border. On both sides of our border, girls, boys, and youths are being exploited. Alma Tucker is the president and founder of International Network of Hearts Foundation, INH, based in San Diego, California. Write this down. Visit www inhearts.org to learn more about INH. Alma has over 20 years of experience assisting victims of human trafficking and advocating for their rights within the border region of Tijuana, Mexico, and San Diego, California. In 2019, Alma was invited to the White House in Washington, D.C. to discuss human trafficking issues at the U.S.-Mexican border with the Trump administration. Alma was also invited to speak in the Rayburn Building at the Capitol on Women's Day in Washington and at the Global Sustainability Network, GSN, at the Vatican in Rome, Italy. Alma received her degree in clinical psychology. Also today you will hear from a brave survivor of human trafficking, Andy Berger, J.D who is founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking, 
VAT, an international organization that networks with independent businesses, nonprofits, individuals, and human rights leaders and legislators dedicated to the eradication of human trafficking and human rights abuse. That VAT hosts quarterly international forums providing awareness, education, and solutions. Write this down. Their website is www.voicesagainsttrafficking.com. Her journey of surviving abuse and trafficking, her road to escape and emergence as a powerful and fearless rescuer is documented in her book, Voices Against Trafficking, The Strength of Many Voices Speaking as One. Both Alma and Andy have contributing chapters. The book can be found on Amazon.com. The information will also be included in the show notes. Ladies, thank you for being here today. I am privileged to share your experiences and expertise on the topic of human trafficking. I know our listeners of I Need Blue will hear a new perspective on the seriousness of this epidemic. Your information complements each other. I would like to begin with Andy sharing her story of surviving the abuse and trafficking. As we learn about the behaviors associated with this crime, we will have a greater appreciation for what you ladies do and the importance of it. Alma, feel free to add information as needed. You are a great resource. Ultimately, this is a joint conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, This is Alma Tucker, president and founder of International Network of Hearts. We are in San Diego, California, and also on the other side of the border with Mexico, Baja California. And I'm also proud to be a a board member of Voices Against Trafficking. Hi, and I'm Andy Berger, founder of Voices Against Trafficking, and so so pleased to be here today with you. Uh, I'm also a survivor of child sex trafficking. My story began years ago from the time I was six months old to 17 years. Uh, My birth family and extended family members trafficked me as a child back when there wasn't a term called human trafficking. People were barely talking about child abuse. And so in the 60s and early 70s, there wasn't a place to go. There wasn't a a way to reach out. Uh, If if it was family members trafficking you, sexually abusing you, physically abusing you, you were really stuck because uh, familial trafficking, uh, the predators get covered by the bloodline. So if I went to get help, which I tried a couple of times, I was sent back and I paid a greater price. And by the time I was five years old, my birth mother made it clear that she could take my life anytime she wanted. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to beat her to the punch because the abuse, the the sexual torture, things like that was so great. I I couldn't see going much further. And I thought, you know, I'd be better if I was just dead because at least I'll be at peace. And I was just five, so I went out to the curb of my house, and I waited for a car to be coming by fast enough so I could jump in front of it. I thought, you know, if I just get smashed by a car, then they can never touch me, and I'll never, ever have to be in that house again. But, you know, on that particular day while I was waiting, there were no cars coming by fast enough or actually no cars at all. And I needed one desperately. But as I waited, I looked up into the big blue sky 
And I wondered, you know, who made this guy? How far does it go? I was a little kid and I was just so curious about, was there someone or something bigger than me, bigger than the people that hurt me, um, that could help me? And for me in my life, you know, that was God. I heard this voice within my heart say, this is not the plan I have for you. Suicide is not the answer. And for some reason, I just trusted that voice. I thought, wow, okay. I went back up to the garage and I leaned against the door and I really felt like I had to trust that voice and I'd never trusted anyone. So it was a big leap. I felt peaceful. And as I stood against that garage door, I simply said, if you keep me alive, I will do whatever you call me to do in my life. Now, of course, at five, you know, I didn't really understand how long it would be in order to turn 18 and be free. And as most victims know, you're not really free. But at that moment, I didn't know what else to do. So the years went on, the abuse went on, the physical, sexual, mental, all of that went on for a long time. I did try to take my life a couple more times. But by the time I was 16, I think I just had decided that I'd already suffered so much that I either had to choose to live forward or really finish the job once and for all. And in my heart, I knew that there had to be somebody out there that loved me or some way that I could, I could find my purpose, that I could find a hope. So I went forward. I finished high school. But before I did, my birth mother made her last try at taking my life by trying to choke me to death when I was 17. So after that, I graduated high school and then I went to college and it was really when I had a little bit of physical distance from these abusers because there was no way to report them uh, as a minor in those days. And there just wasn't an understanding of how uh, family members can abuse other family members. So college was really the first time I actually started to figure out how to um, learn basic skills, you know, how to take care of myself, how to look at how other people lived, and have a little space from the people who were still in my life, but they couldn't touch me as easily. Can you explain how, um, because I think when people think of trafficking, they certainly don't think of six months old. How does a six month old get trafficked? Well, I think it starts with the, the physical and sexual, the sexual abuse and, and babies are often taken, whether it's to sell them or to use them. And you can't say enough about depraved nature, how far someone will go. And my birth mother was the primary sexual predator and orchestrator of pretty much everything evil in my family. A, a mother who plays doctor too much with her baby or uh, a, a male person in the household that that will fondle or do things. So in therapy, there are ways where they can go back. And you can't lie. You can only tell the truth when, you, when you're under a certain um, IV sedation. So during extensive therapy, uh, this is how they were able to determine how far back it went. And then years, years after that, and I was in my 30s, I found out that my birth brother basically said in the last conversation we had that he had never seen me the first year I was born that my birth mother kept me in a room with a female cousin and had people in and out of there. It's unfortunate at toddlers, little children and almond noses, you know, if a predator wants a product and can get their hands on a child or someone innocent, a teenager, 
young adult, they will do that at any cost. And unfortunately, families will cover up those secrets for generations. Did you have any siblings? And if so, were they also victims? Yes, I have a birth brother. I'm not sure where he is. I know he's still living, but I don't know where he's located. And yes, he was four years older and probably endured a lot more than I did just by the fact he was older and the fact that my birth mother had an unusual attraction to him as the male child in the family. What was your mother trying to get? Like, was it drugs? No, no. Uh, She went to church. She was a religious person, um, and she wanted to have the status of uh, living a life that she couldn't have. My birth father was a salesman, didn't keep a job very often, uh, liked his secretaries, things like that. And I think she just had something that was inside of her that was just evil. And, and honestly, I do think that people choose to be good or they choose to be evil or they choose to do nothing, which in my opinion is just as bad as being evil because if you can stop somebody from being hurt or help them, I really believe uh, whatever moral code somebody has, that that's the least you should do. Yes. Um, was your mom a victim of any type of trafficking or abuse or violence as a child? I'm guessing that all of the kids in that family, like her siblings and her, uh, were, were probably physically abused at the very least. This is when I started talking about this, people would say, oh, well, that explains it as if it was okay. And I would always say, you know, when it's between an adult and a child, it is never okay to hurt them uh, mercilessly or to violate them. But I am certain that there was that in her life. Much, much later on, uh, we determined through my own therapy and other things that she probably had multiple personalities, but again, that doesn't excuse the actions, just so someone listening understands that it's never okay to be hurt that way. As a survivor, I think the feeling of shame and guilt are overwhelming, so what you just said is so important. When did you come to the point that you truly felt inside this was not your fault? That is a big question. I think I worked on it the first 30 years of my life, and I married someone that I thought would help me along, but he ended up turning out to not be a very good person and to have his own sexual eccentricities. So that marriage did not last very long, well, about eight years. And in that time, when I did get therapy and I started realizing that One, it wasn't my fault. Two, I needed to learn how to communicate my needs better and how to take care of myself and how to change what I expected. Because at that point, even at that age, I was very successful in business, but not in terms of emotional or relational maturity. I was very naive. So I didn't really know how to speak up for myself, how to say, this is wrong. You can't treat me this way. That came after the divorce before I married my husband, who I've been married to for 21 years. But again, I had to learn how to communicate differently. I had to change my expectations that it wasn't enough to say, hey, it's a great day because nobody raped or beat me today. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people just can't, they can't understand. But it's a tough conversation to have and to acknowledge that it exists. 
Um, when did you get to the point where you could talk about it publicly like you and I are today? I started speaking in my early 30s. I, you might say I kind of took it for a test run because I felt like one in my heart, I, I wanted so desperately to help other people who had been hurt like I had, even though I didn't necessarily have everything handled at that point. And between my faith and my support systems and working and realizing that not everybody treated me the way that the people who were supposed to love me treated me, that there were people out there that actually thought I had value and had worth. And so I began rebuilding my self-esteem, my self-worth, trying to deal with the self-talk and counseling really helped me with a lot of that. And then again, it was a choice every day. I think people don't understand that healing is a moment by moment process. I don't know anyone who's instantaneously, woohoo, I got it all handled. <laughs> um, but I think it's a choice every moment. And when you do that enough times and you do that year after year, it suddenly becomes your new normal, your new habit to say, you know, I don't, this is not a safe person for me, or this is not a good situation for me, or wow, that really bothered me, or I've been betrayed and I'm hurt. How do I self nurture, self care? And that's an ongoing lifetime process. I still deal with PTSD. And at, you know, 60, I'm just starting to talk about that publicly because people need to know more about that. But back to your question, I really, my growth really happened. My healing really accelerated uh, probably in my mid thirties after all the counseling and before I met my husband. And when I did meet him, I realized that what I had always wanted was available to me. I wasn't the one that was broken in all my relationships. It just sometimes takes a different kind of person. And he was the most amazing human in my life in terms of he basically said, Ed would say, I don't understand everything that happened to you, but I can promise you two things. I will always listen and I will always be here. And mm. that's what most victims need is someone to listen and to be there and not always to try and fix things or to try to explain it. Yes. Oh, that is so wonderful. You know, there's something so powerful that you just said about healing and how it is a moment by moment process. Um, one thing I found with going through my healing process is I had triggers that I didn't know existed. Can you tell us about some triggers that, let's say, caught you off guard? Absolutely. One of the things I, I vividly remember to this day, I was probably 19 and I was working in a company, in a sales company, and my birth father happened to own that one. And a gentleman came in who came in all the time, really nice gentleman. He had a very ill wife and he was just the kindest person I had ever known at that point in my life. And he'd always say hello. But on one particular day, I didn't hear him come through the doors of our office. And he came up behind me and put his hands on the back of my shoulders. And I pretty much jumped out. I just freaked out. I turned around and, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, whoa who hurt you? And I wish I could have told him it was the man he was doing business with. But again, I didn't have that presence to be able to do that. So I still have things. I don't watch certain things on TV. If I get triggered by uh, something visual or something I hear, I'm very visual, so that impacts me more. But even if I hear something like 
a person being called stupid or, or somebody angry who's bullying another person. I feel that. I feel all of that, all the body memories. I just know that I have to do something to process that so it doesn't stay with me. So for the general public, what do you think is the greatest misconception? That's a big question, but I think one of the, the, the biggest myths is that, oh, it doesn't happen here, not in our neighborhood, not in our family, not in our community. That is absolutely wrong because we know that just in the U.S. alone, every 40 seconds, a child is abducted uh, age 18 or under. They're, going, they're either taken or they're lured into a situation where they are taken. So we are missing children, and a lot of people just write it off as runaways or they're trouble or they're rebellious, but that's not true. Um, the other part is, oh, well, I've known Jane or Joe my whole life. They couldn't possibly be involved in something like that. We have to get better at vetting, um, not our neighbors like a background check, but if you're leaving your kids or you have kids, I think you have to do uh, a lot of diligence with who is going to be spending time with them and making sure that they're safe people or safe situations. Um, I think the last thing is, is that people don't want to believe that the monster exists, that people are so depraved they would use a child for sex or sell a young girl for sex 20, 25 times a day or a boy. And it's just very hard. Now we've had national headlines with Epstein and Maxwell cases. We, we show, we can know, we know that male and female can be predators, obviously. But, but again, it's hard for people to receive that. Yes. And that's why I am thankful that both of you ladies are here. Because until we continually have the conversation and expose it, it'll keep going on. Would you agree that part of the reason survivors don't come forward is because they don't think they will be believed? Absolutely. I did not think people would believe me, especially in that culture. And granted, I'm a little bit further down the, the block than you know some of the listeners may be. But again, we saw in national headlines that a 14-year-old who testified in the Epstein case was not believed. And so if we, if they take the courage, it's a, it takes guts for a young person to speak up, just like Simone Biles, the Olympic gymnast. She tried to report in 2015, and here we were in 2021, still trying to get someone to listen to her, to believe her, and then they tried to ruin her. So if we do not accept that things happen, that's why I try to encourage anyone who is uh, in contact with children, whether it's a guardian, a grandparent, uh, a natural parent, a step-parent, anyone that is in charge of a child, um, have a conversation about not just stranger danger, but here's our safe word for the family. Maybe the safe word is, I want to go to the boat or, you know, I, I need a, I need an ice cream. Whatever the phrase or word is, this way, if your child is in danger or they feel uncomfortable, maybe they go out in a group with friends and things turn out to be a little different and they're not comfortable, let them be safe enough to talk to you about it or to text that phrase to let you know, hey, come get me, come pick me up or you know, I don't feel good or I don't feel safe here. And then that way, whoever's in charge knows that they need to do something, not just expect that the kid will figure it out. Yes. And one thing I want to address with uh, both of you a little later on is how the internet 
has changed the access to our children because that is huge. Absolutely. Yes. But I do have um, another question for you. Words of encouragement. So let's say somebody who is currently a victim hears this episode, is touched by you. What words of encouragement would you give them to seek help? I would absolutely encourage them, one, to understand it is not your fault. Okay, what happened should never have happened, but it did. And the most important thing you can do for yourself is to go through a healing process, whatever that looks like to you, a qualified counselor, somebody at you know church, somebody at school, somebody that you trust, but definitely get qualified counseling um, to work through. And yes, healing is painful. But the great thing about healing, if you do that and you're faithful with it, if you do the work, you will win. If you do the work, you will win. You can be successful. You can have beautiful relationships and friendships and all those wonderful things. But if we don't deal with the garbage in us, if we can't get that out, it will it will end up stinking up your whole life, basically. It's not very eloquent, but you know that's basically it. But my encouragement is, you are a valuable, worthwhile human being, and you deserve to have a future and a hope, a life that was designed for you. And to, and please don't let that situation or those events take the rest of your life because then the predators win again. Did people fail you when you went for help or when they were aware that behavior was going on that wasn't correct and they didn't do anything to help you? Did you experience that? I did a little bit because I I found out later that some people suspected and knew, but they re- they didn't want to get involved because they thought it would be worse for me and my birth brother. But if they had talked about it, things could have been much better. And when I did try to get help, I was told that, you know, every family has problems. You know, your parents are under a lot of stress or whatever, and nobody really wanted to accept what I had to say. Even when I wrote a letter saying I wanted to take my own life, the person I most trusted and who I thought would support me and understand that there were problems, gave that letter to my birth mother. And then I just got worse. I got a worse treatment because of that. So I stopped trying to reach out. And I thought, if I can just live and survive, then I will win. If I die, they win. And it became a very primal thing. Getting people to report. Why would they do that if they're not going to be listened to? Exactly. And that's probably part of the fear is being, you know, rejected and nobody believing them. It just compiles the whole shame and guilt of, oh, this is my fault. I shouldn't have done anything. You know, as children, especially you at five years old, you have this natural attachment to your parents, right? I I assume like most kids do, they love their mom, they love their dad. What is the psychological challenge between realizing it's okay to not love your mom and maybe even hate her? because of what she did to you versus the internal struggle of, wait a second, that's my mom. I'm supposed to love her. That is a very complex uh, situation indeed. And here's, here's my take on what I can say and having rescued hundreds of kids and stuff myself and watching the stories over and over. First of all, 
with familial trafficking or child abuse or sexual exploitation of any kind, whether it's pornography, any of that, it's all in the same bucket, okay, uh, to a greater or lesser degree. Child abuse is kind of the big umbrella, and under that you have pedophilia, you have trafficking, you have um, you know, all kinds of stuff. But for that relationship, that, that mother-daughter, mother-son, or, or father-daughter, father-son, whatever uh, the situation is, there is a sacred trust. There should be a sacred bond that at all costs, the parent protects the child, tries their best to keep them safe from harm that can be prevented, okay? A lot of times what I saw, even with the kids we rescued, the, the parent or the person responsible for the child would just sweep it under the rug or they would divorce or they would get rid of the family member that was causing the problem, but then they never dealt with the child's pain or the child's experiences of those hideous acts that were committed against them. So without dealing with that part, uh, the child does not get, get what they really need because there's always that self-deprivation, that, that, that horrible shame and guilt like you talked about. The other part is trust is a sacred establishment in my in my view when that's broken it's very hard to rebuild that relationship and yes it is okay to not want to have holidays or to not want to be around the people that have hurt you i don't think there's anything wrong with that what is dangerous to the victim is to harbor the hatred to harbor the bitterness and so I believe in forgiveness, how you get there. It could be different for other people. In my case, I had to pray all the time. I, I, I basically told God, I'm not doing it. Nope, you want me to forgive them, you're gonna have to do it you know, through me because I didn't understand the benefit of releasing all the shame, all the guilt, all the ugliness, all the hurt and all of the grief. There's a lot of grief involved for victims that oftentimes doesn't get brought out. And so when I released, the people that had hurt me, it wasn't for their benefit. It was really for mine because then I could receive joy and love and, and laughter and goodness from other people in my life. It allowed me to fill myself up in those areas. But I have seen victims that have really not been able to do that part or did not get the help they needed to release that hurt and they're very ill some have had cancers, some are chronically ill. Uh, it really affects the body. Sometimes they go, they have a mental illness. So I encourage people, please think about it, consider it, get help if you want to release that out of your life because it is not healthy for you. Did you lose uh, relationships with family and friends maybe that you wanted to keep, but after you came forward, um, they were like, no, I can't believe this, I, you're lying. Absolutely. I had a couple of very close friends and they sided with my birth parents, you know, because they only knew the Chicago Joe, take him to dinner, fun, you know, guy. And then, of course, my birth mother was the, the Stepford wife, perfection, you know, looks good. The house is perfect. The kids are in tow, you know, they're in line. And, and so there was this image that was projected publicly that was not the truth. Um, inside the walls of our homes. And so there were people, I did lose friends. I lost family, the only safe family I ever knew. Uh, I still have great memories of them, an aunt and uncle. And because they were related to my birth mother, obviously, 
there was no way that I could tell them. I tried. I, I got close because I thought if they would just know, they would take me into their home, right? But I never got that chance because my birth mother was always on the prowl, always trying to get me in trouble so she could basically beat the life out of me and hurt me and touch me, things like that. Um, she was very ritualistic that way. My birth father was more impulsive. You never knew when he would go off. So it was, it was very, very hard. I looked over, I, I had shadows behind me my whole life, not being able to know if this was the day I was going to really get hurt or somebody would really brutalize me. So yes, I lost the only decent, safe relationships I had because of that. And when I did start speaking, my one aunt that I just spoke of, she listened and she accepted it. And, and one of the things she said was very telling. I called her from a payphone by my college. I had received a five-page typewritten letter from my birth mother who heard I was starting to speak about these things and basically threatened me with lawsuits and was going to ruin me and take everything. Not that I had anything as a college kid, but this was her. So she went on a legal rampage against me and threatened my life. So I called my aunt. I said, I just want someone to know the truth. And I know this is going to be hard for you to hear. But here I am at a payphone, and I'm just going to let you know if anything happens to me or I die prematurely, your sister, my birth mother, is first on the list. I've already given the police her name because that's how intense it was. And that was the last conversation I got to have with my aunt until I wrote my first book. And that was Amazingly, uh, I don't know how it got into my cousin's hands, but one of my cousins read the book, called her mom, my aunt, and after 40 plus years, we reunited just in terms of a relationship over the phone, and she felt enormously guilty that she didn't know, that she didn't help, and I said, you know what? The only person responsible for what has happened is the person who committed the act. You can't fix what you don't know. So we've been able to have a telephone or virtual. She's not very tech. She's less techno than I am, which is really scary. But um, I've been able to talk to her and a couple of my cousins who were, who would have loved to have had, you know, time with me and, and relationship with me all those years, all those desert years, as I call them. But it just didn't work out. So, yes, I lost a lot. Yes. But you gained a lot too, right? I did. For yourself, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna bring Alma in, but tell me now that I just said that, what is the biggest thing you gained? Wow, you know, I think the biggest thing that I have gained, besides learning to trust again and and having a successful marriage and having real friends like Alma and other people in my life, I, I would say this year in particular or this past year, I should say, through Voices Against Trafficking, the book that we compiled, I found my own voice. I found the authentic Andy inside after a really long time. I used to write and paint and dance and, and write music and do a lot of creative things. And between what happened in my life, a narcissistic abusive ex-husband and all these different things, I kind of lost myself for a while. And I had nine traumatic brain injuries in the last 20 years. So the first book I needed help writing to, to organize it. I had my story, the content, the, the kids that we rescued, all of that, but I couldn't put it together. So I had a great writer help me. But 
last year was the first year I felt like I am really who I'm meant to be. I'm truly authentic. I've always been transparent, but now I'm genuinely authentic after all of this work, after all this stuff. And I finally get to have my voice. And for a kid who had no voice, who had a huge speech impediment, was laughed at all the time up through college years even, I mean, and all the situations at home, that's a big deal. And anyone who's been a victim and has not been heard and has not been valued, they understand that. Thank you for sharing. You're brave and you're courageous. And I know even if you help one person, if your story helps one person, what a difference that has made. Well, thank you. I hope so. I pray so all the time. So thank you for that. Thank you. Alma, hello, my dear. Hello. I love this conversation because we have Andy, who basically lived it, was inside. And then we have Alma and me, who are outsiders looking in, which is what most people see. Can you tell me about your experience? You kind of heard my conversation I just had with Andy. And I would love your perspective based upon your experience, because um, I know that also influenced you to begin your foundation organization as well. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Andy, for sharing with us to open your heart and and all that you went through. I really admire you, and uh, thank you, thank you, because yes, you found your voice, and your voice is helping a lot, a lot of people. And I'm so honored to be part of Voices Against Trafficking. Thank you, Andy. And uh, listening to Andy, we hear all the challenges that a survivor uh, goes through. Um, everything that Andy described in the different stages in, in her life through all this um, trauma, that's what, what is the most common in, in almost every, each case. Uh, you hear over and over all these challenges for for somebody can get out of that life, and mainly when it's a, a family member who is taking advantage and exploiting someone. Um, as we know, human trafficking, the the criminals usually know everything about you, knows you where you live, uh, is a family member, boyfriend, husband, somebody that you trust. And, and, uh, and thank you, Andy, to share this because, yeah, who else you trust more than your own mom, your own father who give you birth? And, uh, and, and that's something unbelievable. Then somebody can take advantage of all that. But it is more common than, than we think. I see it also in, in um, almost every case and then I'm uh, able to support. Let me tell you, I'm so blessed to, to uh, come from a, a home from my parents then then took care of me and love me and protect me and uh in this way i am um, i'm inspired to do for others because um once you have a good parents what can you do how can you don't do something for others then are in need and mentioned then yeah uh, who is the fault is the pe people that make the crime but but uh, I've been hearing stories of uh, some girls that say, you know, Alma, I don't remember anymore the uh, the pain that uh, I received or the rapes that I, I, I was um, victim of. 
uh, I don't either remember those, but what I really hurt me to this day is all the people that were around me and saw it and they didn't do nothing. That hurts. Uh, and, uh, and that particular girl described how her mother, her father took her uh, to her and, and her four siblings um, to hotels, to uh, places for where they uh, allow men, adults to rape them. And, uh, and managers of hotels see that, um, taxi drivers, and nobody did nothing. Nobody reported, and I think uh, uh, my my uh, belief is people then see and don't do nothing is part of the problem. Uh, if you see something, you need to say something because you are part of the problem if you don't do it. Um, the the victims usually don't have a voice; they're being told then they are the problem. Some people don't even know what is human trafficking. Some of our girls say, Alma, I thought about that was my normal life. Imagine five, six, ten years old. And they say, I thought our life was like that. I, I, I didn't knew I have rights. I thought oh, that's life uh, until I, I grew up and I started understanding or until I came to this program, I realized then, no, that was not normal. Uh, and uh, I deserve better life and I have rights. Now I know that. Then, yeah, it takes a long time to heal, you know, trust again. I, I, I remember closing my eyes, the face of girls and, and boys coming to our shelters with a lot of shame, with their eyes down to the floor and uh, feeling the guiltiness. And um, But in our program, we uh, offer uh, psychology therapy. Some kids need uh, psychiatric treatment because they come with thoughts then they want to uh, kill themselves because they they have a they go through bulimia or depression and anxiety then all kind of situation then yeah uh, some of the cases we need the uh, the resources of the specialists to to give them uh, treatment um, and then uh, we also offer uh, social worker services each. Uh, it's, it's, it's a case for us. We want to find uh, who did that to them. Why? Because, yeah, those kids are now in a, a safe place. But when a predator lose one victim, they already have five or six, so they're looking for more. Then uh, we need to find the, the root of the problem. We need to follow the cases. And, uh, and yeah, it's hard and it's a long process, but it's important to... To, to speak for more kids don't need to go through this. How often are the predators caught? Not too common. It's not, not common at all. Um, I, I work closely, you know, with the Mexican, Mexican authorities. And uh, for them, it's like, okay, uh, it's, it's been rescued. It's, uh, we put it in a safe place. But no, I mean, they have the hands full and... Not too common to they follow the cases. We push. We, we have an attorney in our, in our team too, and we push, and they don't like it. They don't like we are asking for justice for these kids. They take the most, you know, value and uh, beautiful part of these children. Instead of them playing with toys and going to school, they're doing things that they're not supposed to do in their age, and they lose, they lose a lot. Then we need to work with all that, and um, uh, 
uh, some kids come and very sexualized because that's what they being uh, forced to do, you know. It's hard for people to come in or, uh, or place and trust us right away. It takes time. I remember I asked one of her girls, TRI, when she was 15. Now she's 24. And I asked her, how long took you for really trust us? And she said, Alma, almost two years to know that you guys are for real. I was always waiting to what they're expecting from me, what they're going to, when they're going to start asking me to do things, you know. Then, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long process. It's uh, psychological has been proven um, a person who's been t- being victimized, I don't know, for five, six years, sometimes takes the same number of years to heal. And yes, they heal if they get the, the right treatment, the right programs. And that's why it's important to, to have programs like what we have and others, then uh, they provide the right services because one, if a victim if doesn't receive the, the, the right treatment, they can come to be a victimizers. Then, uh, then and repeat what they learn. I was going to ask you that they don't escape and end up with somebody great like you or Andy. What happens to them? So do they age out? And what happens if they don't get help? Well, I'm going to answer and then I pass the, the word to Andy. But um, it's also been proven in studies that uh, people then they go, don't go out, they die in an early age because comes a lot of illness, infections. Uh, trauma, and then uh, that's one. And another one, they come to be part of the of, of the you know criminals. They start recruiting all the girls when they and uh, their age is not you know so attractive for the clients. Then that's another thing they can come to be part of the organized crime. And um, but Andy, you want to add more? Sure, I think what you said, Alma, is just perfect. Uh, uh, one thing too, self-medication, you know, a lot of the kids that we rescued, either drugs or alcohol or, you know, things like that, uh, that because they're trying to anesthetize their pain. And so, and, and that happens with adults. So the self-medication, uh, hurting others, like Alma just said, whether it's through uh, replicating the trafficking or abuse that they've had, it, it could be passive aggressive in relationships. It could be a lot of things. They will have trouble with any, uh, getting to a genuine relationship because of all that hurt and pain. So they'll end up in the system, criminal, like Alma said. Uh, and then sometimes uh, they'll just end their life. We've had so many teens that we helped that had already tried suicide a number of times. And then sometimes uh, it's just too much for them. And we haven't been able to reach a couple of teens here and there because they just decided I don't know what to do with all of this, so I'm checking out. So teen suicide is super high, but for victims who who just can't take it anymore, that seems like a better deal to them, and I can't blame them, actually. Yes. Um, Elma, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to add now after Andy spoke. I'd like to insist in what, how important it is to have a programs for uh, survivors homes. Right now we are going through a difficult time to find a house for mom and daughter. Then things that she uh, was rescued, but it's no places for, for mamas with uh, little babies, you know. Then, yeah, it's, it's, it's a need for more shelters. It's a need for more organizations than, than, than for, for minors. 
um, it's not too common to have um, uh, homes for minors. It's more for adults and minors needs uh, definitely they go to you know uh, foster homes or places then they don't receive the the right care. Then uh, just to to be more aware, then how can we help organizations? Then they're already doing the work. Um, how can we uh, prevent and this happen in our own home? Communication with our children, you know, social media is taking over uh, communication. Then uh, we need to be close to our children and what they are, um, what 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 photos they they uh, post or who are their friends, um, and and keep also the the eyes on what are they doing when we're not watching them. Um, then just to bring to the attention and in conscious to the parents about what what we're doing with our children and in and general community to do something about it, to stop human trafficking. Because once you know this is happening, how can you look on the other side? Yeah, happening is very difficult to visualize because people that are, are doing this with our children, with adults, they're working underground. I mean, there's not obvious what they're doing. They're using the internet, but um, but help organization then they're doing the job is what I, I would like to share with the community because when a, a, a boy, a girl is being abused or exploited, it's not anymore just the problem with, uh, with their parents. It's community that needs to respond for these children. Then yeah, call the the right uh, person. You know, nine one one do uh, a report. Uh, calling an organization is uh, also a national line. Then we can share with you to to look for help uh, for people that knows how to take care of this. And and it's important to call an organization, not just the police, because sometimes we can face pe- uh, police or authorities then they're not too familiar with the subject or they're. They don't respond in the in the moment that we need. You know, I, I work a lot with Amber Alert. A predator is going to act in the first four hours when they take a, a child. Then uh, don't wait when you have the suspicious. Then 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 uh, you, your child is in danger and call call the one eight hundred line or call the police. Thank you for that. Um, I heard you talk about housing. You mentioned uh, mothers and babies. Can you define indirect victims? Sure. Um, some of these girls or, or, or ladies are being, you know, sexual assault, um, rape, and uh, comes um, uh, pregnancy from those situations. And then, uh, then sometimes the, the, the victim don't even know who who is the father of this child and uh, then yeah comes uh, a baby but then uh, that baby is uh, we call indirecting indirect victim because they yeah yeah who is the direct victim is the mom I agree with you a hundred percent because uh, yes the child in that situation is definitely an indirect victim but think about uh, as you were mentioning, Jen, what if it had been one of your boys, okay, watching, going through the process, trying to get justice, trying to get help for your child, uh, the, the rest of the family also suffers when there's been an incident against a child. Even one sexual assault can can taint the entire life of a victim. So there's a lot of residual affect from every single incident of sexual abuse trafficking, uh, pedophilia, all of that, pornography, all of that, there is always a residual ripple effect after the victim. 
and that's where the triggers come into play. That's where healing is one moment at a time. And that's where therapy is, it, for some, it is an ongoing process and that is okay. You, you always, you have to learn to be, to, to be first and to take care of yourself. And for some, that's really hard to understand and to be okay with. Yes, it is. It's tough to put yourself first when you were nothing most of your life or treated like nothing. Like Alma is saying, these girls that have been raped and then they an, end up being pregnant and suddenly not only do they have their own life to deal with, now they have to think about another life and how much weight that is emotionally. But uh, Alma men mentioned something about the uh, mental health and, and services and resources, the housing. Absolutely, we need more shelters. No doubt about it. We need communities to be more open to housing these folks, these victims that want to have a chance at a new normal. It'll never be normal the way it was before things happened, but a new normal. We create a new normal, just like veterans when they come home from a war kind of thing. But we do not have adequate mental health services. Physical, mental, and emotional abuse is horrific, and it can be life-impacting. It can last a lifetime. In my opinion, when somebody is sexually abused, assaulted, trafficked, that is the most intimate violation of a human person because it's the soul, the mind, the, the body, the spirit of that human being. It is the life source. And we do not have a lot of counseling or mental health resources dedicated to that kind of healing, that kind of situation, that kind of hurt. I have watched several young victims be taken into an exam room and treated like a piece of meat all in the name of well we have to get the rape kit we have to do we have to do that and they forget that that is a human being okay and then you have counselors that try their best but maybe they're not qualified to go that deep into the psychosexual uh, issues that occur especially with a victim that has had uh, years of abuse or years of trafficking. The average lifespan of a trafficking victim, if they're healthy enough to withstand it, is seven years. And the likelihood of escape, one in a hundred. And that's only off the statistics that we know, the reporting that we know. After the last two years, it, you know, who knows, it could be a lot, a lot broader. But we do know that those victims deserve the very best care that Alma and I and you and everyone else in our communities can give to them if we would collectively get together, which was one of the points of creating Voices Against Trafficking, so that all individuals, all groups, all people, uh, regardless of socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, we're not religious, we're not political, we are just trying to leverage organizations, frontliners like you so that we can go to legislators and go to different leaders in countries and say, this is what we need to do and this is the support we have. Both of you ladies, you're very inspiring. The conversation is just the beginning. There's so much more work to be done. And if people can't look past the, the crime in itself, if they can't even realize that happens, then how do we get to a point where we're really focused on helping and turning the victims into survivors? And I know, Alma, you um, work areas within the border, Tijuana, Mexico, uh, and you're currently in San Diego. Can you tell us there's not enough um, 
TV broadcasting, social media broadcasting on what is going on at our southern border. The amount of people coming in. I don't know if people know the definition of a coyote. I think you have an opportunity to kind of explain a little bit of that so people understand it's not just people illegally coming into the country, like what is going on, what what they're doing to get here, how much they're paying, what they're sacrificing. Can you share some of that through your experience? Sure. Thank you. Um, well, as we know, uh, it's a phenomenon happening here at the border people coming from their countries, third world countries, then they're going through social um, economy uh, challenges, uh, uh, insecurity, etc. Then they hear, you know, kind of like an open invitation, then the border is open and uh, no child will stay behind. And uh, we, then we start seeing thousands and thousands of people coming at, uh, at the border and and yeah, who who moved them? That's the question. Who who brought them to the to this border? Uh, well, the organized crime uh, hearing. Then uh, it's a lot of business uh, bringing people from from uh, from south, and uh, you know they're selling drugs, but they're also now um, um, bringing people and charging for for come without documents to this country, uh, and they telling them then then come, come, the border is open. And if you bring your uh, child, it's either better. They start renting ch- uh, kids to one or another. Oh, you don't have, this couple don't have kids, but let's let's uh, give them some kids for they uh, allow them to come to the country. And they they lie to them. They, uh, they organized crime charge a lot of money to bring them uh, to this border. They call themselves coyotes, uh, smugglers. And uh, they and say to the people, if you want to cross the border by the mountains, 10000 If you want to cross by car, $15,000. And imagine these people don't have money. Don't They don't have that amount of money. But then, oh, you don't have the money, then, then they kidnap them. And they say, you're not leaving here until your family send you the money. Um, or they use them to cross the border. Okay, you're going with this group, but you need to have uh, drugs in your backpacks. Uh, and they use them uh, Samulas, they call them, to, to bring drugs um, and a lot of fet- amphetamine to this country. Then um, now they, they uh, we have been in conference with, you know, and with uh, authorities in Texas, with authorities here in, in, in both sides of the border, and they either put them, you know, a bracelet around their waist, waist um, with uh, different colors, depends on the amount of money they pay, they, they have a different bracelet or if they're minors or if they have a, uh, with them uh, drugs to, to, to bring them to the United States, then this is a, it's a big industry right now. Uh, then they're making a lot of money. Then they're using uh, humans to, to come to, to this country, taking advantage of their need. Then uh, uh, it's, it's affecting both sides of the border. In Mexico, they're, they're uh, in Tijuana, uh, in particular, they live in camp, camping in the streets where they they don't have the basic, you know, toilets and kitchen, uh, bedrooms. And uh, it's a lot of issues going now with the COVID. Uh, then it's a health problem. It's also because it's, you know, the organized crime is, there we, we win them. Then it's a lot of uh, insecurity issues too, assaults. 
then it's, it's affecting the community in Tijuana. And uh, the president of Mexico say that the migrants are welcome here. Um, that's also the other message and agreements between one country and another, but they actually don't offer the uh, uh, the number of services that those migrants need. Then it is a, a, a big thing going here. And uh, now we extend our services for migrants too. We visit them, we bring them food. And my, my goal is to identify uh, victims of human trafficking, uh, children victims of human trafficking. We already serve one boy from Honduras and another one from Guatemala. And the kind of um, uh, trauma that they, they're being through is, is horrible. I mean, the one of particular, the mother of one, uh, she was forced to have sex with men. Uh, she was forced to use drugs and the little boy so uh, uh, or experience all that in, with his own eyes, watching what how they were taking advantage of their mom, and uh, then yeah, um, we open now services for for migrants too, and uh, and there's a lot of things going right there in the border. Yeah, that's awful. Um, how many children are coming over unaccompanied? I know I've heard stories where the parents want the child to have a better life or whatever it is, and so they're paying for the child to get come into the United States? Well, um, I don't have exactly the number. I know it's thousands and thousands of, of kids coming uh, and, and adults too. Um, but yeah, uh, some, some they, they make it to the United States one way or another because, you know, some areas has no, no wall. Uh, the project was stopped from this new administration and they walk in like they walk in, you know, to a different neighborhood then yeah, it's a lot to do and uh, looking forward for this new administration Then it's not so new anymore. Take, take the, the subject more serious. Uh, I know the president Biden um, um, uh, invite everybody to create awareness this month because it's the month uh, awareness against human trafficking. But uh, we used to have a meetings in the White House uh, uh, and it's, nothing is happening right now. It's not in the agenda as a priority then we have to, to keep working work that has been done before. That's unfortunate because it doesn't matter what administration is in the White House, the sex trafficking doesn't stop. You know, it's not Republican, Democrat, th this is people. And, you know, I want to ask you, so when you did work with the Trump administration, can you share with us some of the things that you were able to get accomplished? Like if the government is going to help, what are things that they either did in the past to help you out or that you need today? Well, um, what happened is, as you know, that, that administration was uh, only um, four years. Then uh, uh, the, a lot of the work that they started has, I mean, was in the process of getting to the next level. I know um, a lot of money was uh, released to fight against human trafficking, uh, to support shelters that are already open in the United States. Um, at, we were part of that um, network because our location in San Diego in Mexico, but uh, we were in the process to, to uh, um, because we want to open a, a shelter here in San Diego, but everything stopped. Then uh, we didn't... Uh, um, were able to receive that support and we were in conversations and like you say it's unfortunately then the communication is not uh, going as used to be and hopefully uh, happen soon. 
Do you have private donors or let's say somebody is listening and is like, wow, I really want to help? Yes, yes. Um, Andy and myself also, we both organizations and we are 501c3. Uh, we, we receive donations, we can give tax deduction receives, then then yeah, you can find um, and, and for International World of Heart in, in our website, it's a red button right there, then uh, anybody can uh, help us with donations, any donation helps, then I really encourage you to, to keep supporting us for we can rescue more people, support more people and look for shelters for people in need. That's great. So there is a red donate button on their website, go check it out. Like she said, any donation will help. They are a 501c3, so it is tax deductible. We are all human. And whether we want to acknowledge this exists or not, um, it does. And as humans, we need to help each other. So every little thing we can do um, will benefit humankind. Um, Elma and Andy, do you have any last words, uh, encouragement, information that you want to share about you and your organizations, things you have coming up? Floor is yours. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take the lead if you're okay, Alma. <laughs> uh, definitely voicesagainsttrafficking.com. Just like Alma said, it is a 501c3 organization. We're a nonprofit. And all the same things apply, donations, tax deductions. And what we do with the dollars, uh, a few of the things, we provide an international forum for free on Facebook and YouTube every quarter, like every three months. Our next one will be March 30th. And we bring uh, people and voices from all over the world, uh, US, Mexico, uh, Australia, everywhere, to share what what's working in the fight against human trafficking, to share stories, to share uh, policies, to share ideas, to share, hey, you know, what if we do this? What if we did that? So it's a great way to educate the public uh, in little five to six minute uh, presentations by these speakers for an hour and a half. And so we put those on and we produce those and we've been doing that for a couple of years now. We also have a new book that's been released, Voices Against Trafficking, uh, The Strength of Many Voices Speaking as One. And there are 18 authors and 20 chapters, all from different perspectives. And our own Miss Alma has a wonderful chapter in there. If you really want to know what's going on with the border, Mexico, what, what's happening with these children, that's a great chapter to read. We have media members who have contributed. We have um, a woman who is just amazingly uh, active and astute and She's almost 80. She actually walked with Martin Luther King. She wrote an amazing chapter on the evolution of slavery, which, by the way, involved human trafficking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of year ago, years ago. It's not a new thing here. We also have what you can do when you travel, uh, how to keep your kids uh, safe on the Internet. So that book is another tool, and we're going to bring that out every year. And our goal is to get a book into the hands of every senator, every uh, U.S. Congressperson, every attorney general, and every governor in the U.S. every single year, so that the influencers at the top down uh, in your state and across the board can't say they don't know or they didn't understand. We are making it very clear. And our book also has helplines, hotlines, it also has tips. So it's another tool. We're trying to get as many tools in our belt so that the everyday person can say, hey, you know what, I could do this much, 
or if I don't have time or I don't have money, maybe I can just add my voice to the roster. Voices Against Trafficking wants to have 1 million voices by the end of summer 2023 on our roster, which is on our website. You can go to our website. There's a tab that says add your voice. And we want to be able to take those million names to legislatures, to other places where we can say, you know what, we have a million people and they want you to protect their children. They want our, the future of our country and other countries to be protected. And so we can leverage that to get things done. So a couple of things for encouragement. Again, if you're out there and you're stressed out and you're busy, who isn't, and you're not sure what you can do, a very simple thing is go to our website, voicesagainsttrafficking.com, look up the helplines and put them in your cell phone. If you see something, say something like Alma said. And you can't do that if you don't know where to call or who to call. So put those hotlines and helplines in your phone. And if you have children old enough to understand what they're for and how to use them, make sure they have them in their phones as well. Because guess what kids see? They see other kids being hurt or being taken or in trouble, probably more often than we as adults do because we're not in the same social circles. So we want to make sure our kids have helplines. And then lastly, if you vote for anyone, a mayor, a city council person, uh, state anybody, a governor, make sure that you're getting your votes worth in terms of protecting the children in your community. If they cannot tell you what they're doing, what laws they're supporting, uh, what their activities are regarding anti-trafficking measures and education, then they probably shouldn't have your vote or your support the next time around. So those are simple things that can be done. And again, if you're a victim, please reach out for help. We want to be there for you. Even if we're not in your town or your area, there are people that want to help you. So we are looking for you. And if you've been found and you need help rehabilitating, um, reach out to one of our websites, Alma, myself. Uh, we, we would be happy to direct you to help. We want to make sure that you have a chance at the life you deserve to have. Thank you, Andy. And I uh, just want to add um, the, the number of the, the hotline is 1-888-373-7888. Please, uh, if you see something, if, if you're going through something, give a call to this number and uh, it's, uh, that, that they will help you specific in cases of human trafficking. And to reach to us, um, our website is www.inhearts.org. And you can find us also on Facebook and Instagram. And also, please uh, go to Amazon, get our book, Voices Against Trafficking uh, is an Amazon. We need also your review. And we have to give voice. And that's one way, uh, getting that book, learning more. And that's the best way to prevent something happen for you or the people that you most love. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you guys. Yes, thank you, Jen, for putting this together. We appreciate your listeners. Absolutely. I want to give a big thank you to Alma Tucker and Andy Berger. Really appreciate you being here today. Thank you for the courage of sharing your stories and providing us with a lot of information. This is Jen Lee with the I Need Blue podcast. Check out my website, www.ineedblue.net. I also have a Facebook and an Instagram, and I can be found on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for listening, and remember, you are stronger than you think. Thank you.